Well, as we're all aware, 2017 is just a few weeks old. We are still in the beginning of this new year. Some of us are still wrestling with what New Year's resolutions and goals are going to win out and stick and stand the test of our busy schedules and win over our time. Eventually, our hopes for new resolutions and goals of a new year becomes nothing more than a game of priorities. Often we see the opportunities of a new year as a chance to develop less worry or commit ourselves to working less or the everyone's favorite, losing more weight. We hope to save more money, but at the same time spend more time with the kids. Maybe we set a goal of taking an overdue vacation or finding the time to recommit ourselves to some hobbies we've left go of over the years. Does that sound like some goals you've ever set for yourself in a new year? Though some of these things might be great things, and they are good goals to achieve, they are also nothing more than reactionary expressions of a misplaced identity and confidence. Far too often we set and prioritize goals or resolutions around our concerns of self-centric worry, possessions, and money. In Matthew, Jesus turns to teach his disciples, his early followers, and the crowds that are around him, and he begins to address their identity by addressing their priorities of worry, money, and possessions. He begins to tell them how their lives should be shaped and transformed with new values through a simple command. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything else you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Now that is a New Year's resolution. This is a priority in which God promises us as we live out, all other things will fall in line with. But how intentional are we about this one day to day? How often do we make this our prioritized New Year's resolution? Now you've probably heard me tell this story before, but bear with me. My grandmother was a fabulous cook, and she cooked more food than anyone could ever seemingly finish. She could feed an army, and there would still be leftovers. She'd bring plate after plate after plate of the main dish to us and expect us to have room for it. Then she'd approach the dinner table with dessert. We were already stuffed, and we were doing everything we could just to put our hand up and say, no more, please, we're, we're good. We can't bring anything else into our bodies. However, she would always smile and reply, don't worry, dessert just melts and fills in the cracks. This is a reality we live out within regards to Jesus far too often. Life keeps bringing us appetizing dish after appetizing dish, stealing our time and our schedules and our identities. Our main dishes of activities and opportunities and self-interest seem to fill us up. In fact, our identities are filled on the day-to-day with a high sense of self-importance in a time that is shaped by self-promotion, self-achievement, and pursuit of self-interest. We take selfies, and we tell everyone about everything on Facebook. Jesus fills in the spaces on the weekend. 
to seconds before a meal and kind of as a dessert in times that are already busy with another main dish. Sometimes we only remember Jesus, it seems, when we need a prayer or to offer a praise. So this week and next week, we are going to be looking at some transformative things that Paul says happens to our identity when we make Jesus the main dish, when we make Jesus central to everything, when we seek the kingdom and to live righteously. Paul pushes out that there are some things that happens to our identity when we allow ourselves to become invested in the spirit and the presence of God. This week, we're going to be looking at developing an identity invested in the Spirit and the presence of God. We will look at an identity invested in the Spirit of a living God in such a way that Jesus moves from the margins of our lives, the spaces he fills, to the major or the the center of our lives. Before we get into reading our scripture this morning, I want to stop and just pray for a minute. So come, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you be with us, that you speak to us from the text in which we are going to look at in Corinthians. We ask that as we move into a new year, that we do not find you sitting on the margins of our lives, but really at the center of our lives. We ask that you teach us what it means communally and individually to seek the kingdom of God first, to pursue it at all costs, and to live righteously so that we can see the other things come together and come in line. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Identity theft, we're talking about identity and how Jesus addresses identity. Identity theft is the stealing of a person's identity through financial information or their social security number with the intention of using that information to create a phony persona persona, or by attaching things to someone else's identity. Has anyone here ever been a victim of some expression of identity theft? I know I have. You've had your credit card stolen and something on it that isn't yours. That is a form of identity theft. In fact, a few years ago, I went to use my credit card, and I realized that for some reason it was locked. And so when I called my bank, they said, well, we locked it because someone used your credit card in Columbia, Pennsylvania, at a Burger King, at the same time that somebody was using it in California to buy something at a 7-Eleven. I was home in East Petersburg at the same time that somebody was buying a Big Mac and a slushie. That is a form of identity theft. Just a year ago, one of my favorite things that teased Bob was about that his church credit card got hacked by somebody in Kuwait, and he bought some like $6,000 worth of things in Kuwait. I asked him if he was buying some oil or something like that. Forbes reports, Forbes the magazine, reports that identity theft is the fastest growing crime in the United States. In 2013, somebody became the victim of identity fraud every two minutes, totaling 13.1 million people. That's a lot. Amy Krebs, a A normal citizen in a Forbes interview describes her experience with identity theft. And I'm going to just tell you her story this morning. In February of 2013, I came home from after work on a Friday and I received a phone call. It was a major credit card's fraud department. They said someone had tried to obtain a credit card in my name, address and social security number as well, and asked if I had signed up for a card. I told them I had not. 
They said, well, we flagged this, and we'll deactivate the card and send you a new one. And even though there was all of these flags, they still sent the new credit card to the address that was on file, which the hacker had replaced with her own. Amy goes on, it was more serious than I thought. I just thought someone had stolen my credit card and gone out to eat and purchase some items. So I went online to Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, and you're supposed to answer four security questions to uh, confirm your identity, which should be easy if it's you. Which one of these four addresses have you lived at? Which one of these employees have you worked for? She couldn't even get to her first two reports because this hacker had infiltrated her credit history so much and to the point that her information overrode her own. Amy was finally able to get into her third credit card by guessing questions. So, as she scrolled down her credit report, she said there was account after account after account that wasn't hers. So much so that she found that she was actually a victim for some time, and this hacker had now, in the past six months, opened 50-plus accounts against her name and credit. She goes on to say, so I can only imagine how many more accounts would have been opened if I didn't find out as early as I did. Forbes says, what advice would you give to others to prevent identity theft? This is her response. Question when somebody asks you for your social security number. I'm shocked by how often when I ask, do you really need that? They say no. Well, don't ask if you don't need it. Our social security is the heart of everything that we can possess in this world. Our number shows our history, what kind of person we are, what hardships we've had, what things we like to spend our money on, what things we owe money on, what things we worry about, and what things we save our money for. It is our financial identity. Most of us look to protect it at all costs and not let it become overrun with stuff. In a world that quickly fills our schedules, we must not only look to protect our financial identity, but also wisely protect and invest our spiritual identity most of all. Stephen Covey, a motivational speaker, says it like this. The true identity theft is not financial. It is not in cyberspace. It's spiritual. Henry Nguyen echoes it like this. Spiritual identity means we are not what we do or what people say about us. And we are not what we have. We are beloved daughters and sons of God. This morning, we are going to be looking at what it means to protect our spiritual identity by investing it in the right place and putting the right guards in place so that people can't hack, attach, or steal it or drain it. This morning, we are going to look at 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 16. I invite you to follow along either in your Bible or on a screen in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible and want to follow along, the Red Pew Bible in front of you, you can find this on page 1143, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 16. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is Paul addressing the church in Corinth. You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not the letter, but the not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, the Ten Commandments, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, transitionary though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with this surpassing glory. And if what was transitionary came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who had to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. For what was glorious had no glory until in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitionary came with glory, how much greater of the glory that lasts? I just said that already, didn't I? But their minds were dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is a very deep passage. It's actually one of my favorite passages. I think there's many layers to what Paul is saying here. And in this time period, Paul has taken a serious blow to his identity. People have come into the church and accused Paul of some things, and they've tried to undermine his ministry. They have talked bad behind his back while he's absent. And in it, they are saying, Paul isn't the great leader that you think he is. And Paul walks in, and he realizes his identity has been hijacked. His identity has been stolen. And he says, guys, I don't need letters to you or from you. You know who I am. He reminds them that you know who I am because I'm the reason you are the way you are. The Spirit has written on our hearts and unveiled our eyes, and you know we see God together. To quote my earlier line from Henry Nguyen, he says, Spiritual identity is not what people say about us. This is one of my favorite passages, as I said. And I think this morning we can take away some really important notes on developing an identity that's invested and protected in the presence of God. When you came in this morning, you should have received a bulletin. And inside that bulletin, you'll see there's some underscores and some places to take some notes and to follow along. I encourage you to do that and to reflect on them throughout this week. The first thing we see is this. Our lives actually serve as a loud and bold letters of recommendation 
of the things that define us and shape our hearts to everyone we encounter. We might say our lives are our credit reports. It's obvious at the start of this letter that Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that their lives speak louder than any letter recommendation he or they can acquire. Only those who look to commend themselves really need written letters of of recommendation. Let me say that again. Only those who are looking to commend themselves need a written recommendation or require it. Testimony of our truest identity comes through the way we live our life. Paul says it this way, written not with ink, we read this in his passage, but with the spirit of the living God, not on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. In verse 2, Paul says that your life is known and read by everyone. When you counsel somebody, there's a technique called mirroring. If you're not familiar with this technique, let me just tell you about it. Mirroring is a thing where you practice with the person that you are counseling to make sure they are hearing what you are saying. Can you repeat back what you heard me say? There's two reasons we do this. The first reason you do that is because you want to make sure that the person is really understanding what you are saying. We want to make sure that they are understanding the next steps and that they are able to comprehend it and own it. The second reason we do this is because we want to be aware of what our body language or words might be implying into a situation that are not really there. Paul is saying your life mirrors your heart. Your letters of recommendation are your heart because your life serves as a recommendation of that. One of the first things I did when I came to East Petersburg was asked some people what they thought the neighborhood would say about the church. And they said, well, they thought that we had a good VBS program where the church is on the hill. There was uh, people that thought they would say that we are a very friendly people to the neighborhood, that we've been here a long time. And when I went into the neighborhood and began to interview neighbors, hey, what do you think of that church on the hill? What they saw us saying was something completely different. This is the technique of mirroring. What is it that we are saying with our lives? What is really what's at the root of our heart? So what we're saying to the neighborhood isn't what we think we're saying because it's not really the heart of who we are. We have an identity problem. John Wimber said it like this. Show me where you spend your time, your money, and energy, and I'll tell you what you worship. We might say, show me where you spend your time, money, and energy, and I'll show you what your heart expresses through the way you live your life. Jesus explained that same dynamic like this. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Whatever appetizing things we allow on our dinner plates to fill us is our treasure. Whatever things we allow on appetizing plates to fill our schedule is our treasure. That treasure is what will seemingly shape our identity. And our hearts will follow after our treasure, but not only our hearts, so will our lives. Secondly, Paul reminds his readers that when our hearts and lives are shaped and defined by the Spirit in the presence of God, 
we skillfully, or as he said, competently, live boldly and confidently about who we know and confess Jesus to be. Listen to Paul's lines that I pulled out from 1 Corinthians 3. You show that you are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but the Spirit of the living God. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent or skilled in ourselves, but that we are skilled or competent from God. He has made us skilled ministers of a new covenant. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Dwight L. Moody pushes it out like this. When we find a man meditating on the words of God, my friends, that man is full of boldness and is successful. Now, the only thing that I don't like about this quote is the word successful, because I think it can become a distraction, and I would change it to fruitful. So I would say it like this. When we find someone meditating on the words of God, being shaped by his presence in the midst of that, my friends, that man is full of boldness and is fruitful. Now, why I change the word successful and fruitful is because we tend to think of successful in a very human way. I've acquired such wealth. I've acquired such level at my job. And fruitful speaks to the reality that we are actually being successful at the things that God wants us to be. We are being fruitful with the gifts he's given us. Paul speaks to this reality of the Spirit by making us complete, bold, and confident time and time again through his letter to the churches in both Corinthians and Ephesians. It is a concept that he really wanted the early church to get, that when you spend time with God, it shapes your identity, and you get very bold with it. Is that our identity? I don't know. I'm just saying that Paul really wanted to push that out. However, this reality isn't a new one. It wasn't an idea that just was centric to Paul and in the early churches. We even find it throughout the wisdom literature as well. Song of Psalms, we find it in Proverbs and Psalms. And so Psalms 27.14 explains it in a really cool way. And it says, wait on the Lord, spend time with the Lord, wait on him, be courageous, and he will strengthen your heart. And then the same thing again, wait on the Lord. This is what shapes our identity, waiting on the Lord. And it will make your identity bold. Paul reminds his readers that when our hearts and lives are shaped and defined by the Spirit and the presence of God, we skillfully live boldly and confidently about who we know and confess Jesus to be. What we say with our lives really says what we think about Jesus. And if it says that we just want to acquire things, and if we just want to move up the chain and fill our schedules, it doesn't say anything too cool about Jesus. The third thing I want to point out from this passage is this. The way you live your life, Paul points out, not only speaks of who you know Jesus to be, but also as a witness to who disciples and ministers to you. The way you live your life, Paul points out, not only speaks of who you know Jesus to be, but also a witness to who disciples and ministers to you. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 3.3 again to get this point. Look at what Paul points out in this passage. You show that you are a letter from Christ, comma, the result of our ministry, comma. 
written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What Paul is saying is that he doesn't need a letter of recommendation because the only recommendation that he needs is the proof that's found in the hearts of those he is addressing in his letter, those in which he has invested his ministry in. His letter of recommendation is the people of Corinth. He has actually intentionally ministered to them and taught them also how to shape their identity in the presence and the spirit of the living God. What if East Petersburg Mennonite Church didn't need a vision statement, did not need a website, did not need a brochure? What if you did not have to tell your neighbors what to expect when they come here or what our church is like because our lives were so identified in the presence of God that it oozed contagiously from us? That's what Paul's saying. Your lives not only speak to what Jesus has invested in you, but also those who have ministered to you. What would happen if we sought first the righteousness of the kingdom and seen all things added to it? You and I would not only show what happens to the identity of our heart, but it would also show who we confess Jesus to be. It would carry a loud message about what we do or do not do at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. Our lives also say what we think of our church and what happens here. Your lives are a letter from Christ shaped by what God is doing here at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. So take a look at your life this week. What story are you telling? What story do your neighbors, Paul says, everyone sees it, it's known and read by everyone. What is your life saying about what you think of East Petersburg Mennonite Church? And what is it saying about what you confess of Jesus? My fourth takeaway is this. Too often we as individuals and as a church want to be known for an identity and boldness for the things in which we proudly commend ourselves for. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul opens it with this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He goes on to say, we are not like Moses, who had to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But is this true? Are we like Moses more than we'd like to admit Is it true that we often live lives that are covered by the veils of words that make our faith appear in a certain way that actually do not match up with our lives? Do we wear a veil of words to cover the fact that the life of our community and the life of us as individuals is actually lacking a God-shaped identity? Too often, we as individuals and as a church want to be known for the identity and boldness for the things in which we are proudly commending ourselves for. God's people, Christians, Jews, have a habit of commending themselves in a way that come from a broken and wrong identity. In fact, this has happened time and time again throughout history. Look at this message that God told Jeremiah to relay to his fellow countrymen, God's first people. Let not the wise man boast, or commend themselves, we could say, in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich boast about his riches. Let 
him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you were to make a list of the things that you commend yourselves for, or that you think we as a church commend ourselves for, what would be on that list? Is it our wisdom? Is it our might? Is it our achievements? Is it our riches? Let us boast only that we are seeking after the kingdom of God. Let us boast only that we have hearts that are shaped like letters by the presence and the spirit of the living God. Let us only boast in this, that we understand and know who God is. That is what our identity should be shaped by. It's what our identity should be protected by so that things cannot steal or hack our identity. We can also say it like this. The only thing we should be taking identity and boldness from is what God writes on our hearts through the time invested in the Spirit and presence of God. Paul in verse 4 says it like this. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. From what competent boldness in the identity of our heart is shaping our lives? We need to be making sure our time with the Lord is not a marginal aspect, but a major, major aspect of our life. It needs to be the main dish. It can't be that dessert that fills in the cracks. It can't be the thing that we allow people and our schedules to weigh down and begin to affect our identity with. Our second to last takeaway is this. God deeply invests in us a contagiously hopeful confidence and sense of life in glorious ways when we prioritize the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. Again, listen to some of Paul's words from this chapter. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not the letter by, of the Spirit, but the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image. Our identity is becoming His identity with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. A, a heart, a life that is not intentionally invested into the presence of God on a regular basis experiences no sense of life in glorious ways. It doesn't experience the skill sets or the boldness of which God promises for us. Jesus and his glory will only remain in our marginal shadows, as long as we keep Jesus there too. I'd much rather have a hopeful confidence and a sense of life in my every day than miss out on it. The last point is this. When we allow our lives and our hearts and lives to be shaped and defined by time spent in the presence and the Spirit of God, we will experience freedom from everything else that defines us or attaches itself to us. We'll have the best credit report, we could say. We will dramatically become more and more like Jesus and our truest self. 
This is the way to fix, launch, or rediscover our identity, the truest form of our identity in our hearts. I want to know my truest self. I want to live my life as a letter of my heart. I want my heart to be shaped by the Spirit and the presence of God. I want to continually meet the presence of God in a way that it never fades or needs hidden. I want an identity deeply invested in the Spirit so I can experience what Paul calls the freedom of the Spirit. From the things that I've allowed to trap me, to marginalize Jesus in my life, or attack my identity in a way that it moves Jesus from the major to the marginal. Wherever the Spirit is, Paul says there is freedom. Wherever the Spirit is, Paul says there is freedom. I want that freedom in my life. What about you? I want to be able to be free from those other things that are, are trying to attach themselves to my identity or weigh down my busy schedules, those things that seem to fill the day-to-day by understanding my identity even more firmly in who Jesus is. This is a never-ending journey. Each year, as we enter a new year, it, it becomes more evident that we don't know as much as we think we know about Jesus, and we have to continue to push in to discover more. This is my New Year's resolution. I hope it's yours as well. I want to learn more and more of Jesus because none of us get it all. And none of us are there yet. For we know only in part. I want to seek first the kingdom of God and live a life of righteousness in 2017 and then see all those other things come down. I want to see East Petersburg Mennonite Church live a life together that is so sure of who God is and what he's doing here that we live contagious letters to our neighborhood of who God is. In fact, I don't even want that. I want my life to live a letter of East Petersburg Mennonite Church that says of what God is doing here. I want to say, when people see me, they know it's because of what God's doing at East Petersburg Mennonite Church. That's what I want. Remember the story I opened with? Forbes asked Amy Krebs, what advice would you have for others to prevent identity theft? Krebs, a victim of identity theft, said, question when somebody asks you for your social security number. I'm shocked by how often when I ask, do you really need that? They say no. Well, don't ask for it if you don't need it. Let's reword that answer this morning. I'm shocked by how often when I ask, do you really need that? They say no. Well, don't ask if you don't need it. Go protecting your financial identity, but even more so your spiritual one. Keep yourself looking into the presence of God. Develop practices and spiritual disciplines of prayer, listening, and scripture reading. Practice the counseling technique of mirroring. Hey guys, what is it that I seem to come across with? Ask your friends who are not Christians, what does my life say to you? In this new year of 2017, make sure Jesus is your main dish and the other things are just dessert. I invite this worship the worship team to come back up. And I invite you to, as we sing this last song, to, to really focus on it and saying, God, where have I allowed my identity to become compromised? Where have I allowed my life to mirror something different than what I wish my heart was. And surrender those things in this song.